the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm Paul Spain. Craig Meek. Robert Goldsling. Great to have you both along. Craig, let's start with you. Maybe you can uh, fill listeners in where you fit into the technology world here in New Zealand. I know you've got a long, esteemed history. I think I, I first came across you when I came to Auckland in about 1990, so that's a quarter of a century ago. It seems a long time, doesn't uh, it? Tell us what you're up, up to now and a uh, little bit of background. Yeah, well, I guess the background's been uh, got heavily involved in the sailing, around the world racing, and that, that sort of, um, mainly around tracking, I've got to say, so I wasn't on the boat, so... Uh, allowing people to see what was going on so that led into the america's cup so which virtual spectator which helped us all understand a little bit more about sailing so and now Sweetbox is uh the the big new thing that uh hoping to change the world in business so that's great and uh robert or goz as you're more commonly known um maybe you, you can tell us where you fit in oh um measuring 25 years i've uh, been at oracle for 25 years um, it's been a great journey i've just come back from eight years in australia uh, I'm now the Managing Director of Oracle New Zealand. Great. And it's great to be back in New Zealand. Yes, it's a great place to be, that's for sure. Well, let, let's jump straight in. Um, some pretty interesting news over the last few days, particularly from the Microsoft front. And, of course, looking back in the, in the last few weeks, we've had announcements from uh, from Google and from Apple and now Microsoft, so we just sort of had this lineup of announcements coming through, and both Google and Apple seem to be following a little bit in, uh, in Microsoft's lead in terms of launching tablets that seem to be geared up for, uh, for productivity, for working on with a tablet with a keyboard attached. But Microsoft sort of pushed that a little bit further than uh, probably most were expecting with this announcement. And, you know, there were a few things that, the, that they announced last week. But the Surface Book, I think, was a surprise to, uh, to most. Most people were just expecting a, a new uh, Surface Pro and um, yeah, then they pulled out this uh, this laptop that can be uh, separated up and turned into a uh, a tablet as well. Now, Craig, when we were talking um, earlier, you mentioned how much that you know you use the Surface, and you work a lot with clients in the the financial space, and that the Surface Pro seems to be an incredibly popular uh, product in that space. Where do you think this new sort of the refresher that you know the Surface Pro Four, which has been announced, and this uh, Surface Book will will fit? Do you think they're going to be popular? Well, I think it's interesting from the financial advisory side, where people often meet you know out in a cafe, and so they're wanting to do their business over a cup of coffee, and of course the iPad's been uh, kind of slotted in there quite nicely, but mm. I think the Surface, which I use, and I use the iPad as well, but I can see the why people will actually probably go the Surface way because it is essentially a computer. They can sit there and do all their Excel and their whole all their business documents, Word. And so, you know, the iPad's obviously a great machine, but I, I can definitely see with the, the pen, the ability to sign on screen, I think that's got huge advantages. And so it's a nice, lightweight, um, mobile computer. Mm. Goz, what gets used in your business? What do you see customers using? Do you sort of see some preferences sort of starting to shake out in this tablet direction? Yeah, Paul. I mean, we, we I mean, we ourselves have a, a bring your own device policy. Uh, I'm personally, I use um, uh, Apple, um, mm. so I've got an iPhone. I use a um, iPad Mini for taking notes of work and also for reading on the airplane. Uh, and I bought one of the new MacBooks. Um, and actually, I bought the MacBook because of what Craig said. Uh, there are times when I actually need a laptop, um, predominantly doing spreadsheets or, or PowerPoints, mm. um, 
I find it a little bit distracting to do that on an iPad. I saw the Service Pro and I thought that was actually quite exciting, um, quite an exciting release. Um, um, not sure whether I'm going to look at it. Um, but our, our customers are actually uh, using a combination of devices, and, and one of the things we're very conscious of when we're building out new products is to make them device independent. Um, not not just you know people talk about mobility. Um, uh, mobility is actually very real in the business sense. Um, a lot of people these days are, are travelling a lot. I, I mean, I know I spend a lot of time on aeroplane and at airports. Uh, there's you know, we push out internally a lot of approvals that need to be done online, and it's very convenient to be able to do that on my phone. And so our, our customers are actually demanding from us to actually be device independent, and uh, you know, so, so all our new products are coming out um, to run on iPads or, or the Surface Pro or, or just standard laptops. I guess as, as that happens more and more, then it's much easier for people to choose whatever they want. And, you know, in part at the moment, I guess people, you know, have to choose something like a Surface where they've got traditional applications that still need a full blown PC. Craig, for, for what you do with Sweetbox, you've developed that in such a way that it can run, you know, predominantly through or only through the browser, right? So you, you're probably a little bit more uh, flexible there in terms of the, de- the devices than uh, some apps would be. Well, certainly from a development perspective, you don't have to code them to run across every platform yeah. to be flexible. Yeah, no, we're all, we're very much hardware independent. So the, the browser is our window for delivering our business solution around the video and the signing of documents. So uh, which is a good thing because it actually makes it very uh, transportable, and um, and there are, you know, competition coming through in various different areas. Everyone wants to get a smaller, smarter device. But I think the thing we were talking about before was that I think that multitasking uh, component of the Surface. You know, when you're sitting somewhere and you've got eight windows open, you've got your mail and you're jumping between documents. It's just not that's not a natural thing you do with an iPad, but that's something that you do with a. A, d- a device like that, but uh, certainly for us, at least, we're we're really channeling through the browser as a as a, a way of delivering the the business. Mm. So, um, just looking at that uh, that the the announcement last week, what we know from a uh, New Zealand perspective, and the main thing we well we don't know is when this new Surface Book is actually coming to New Zealand. So we've got a uh, US launch date of twenty uh, sixth of October. Uh, we've seen Australia will be getting the Surface Book on the twelfth uh, of November. But as of this afternoon, I hadn't had any confirmation from Microsoft New Zealand about an actual launch date here, which is uh, is rather curious. So we've seen Microsoft do this before. We've seen Apple and others do it before where you know they make a big announcement, it's available in the US, but not available here, which is, is a fascinating uh, position. But I guess there's... These reasons for that, Goz, Do you uh, see that with your, uh, you know, with Oracle products? Do you see, you know, from a software perspective, are things always available sort of globally at the same time, or there must be some variation for region from time to time? Um, generally, everything's released globally, so it becomes what we call global available. Um, the only variation it could be uh, some products like payroll, for example, that has uh, requirements for localization. That sometimes can put a delay in the production release in different countries. Uh, but the core code base is released globally at once. And then your cloud services, you, uh, you've got many data centers around the world where those are, those are hosted. Does that impact people in some, some regions? Or I guess they could access services in other regions if something wasn't available locally for them anyway. Yeah, so, so again, we, we, we treat that as a global capability and, and where the data center that's hosting those applications is, is Really transportable to the to the user. Um, so we, we we actually make the decisions based on market demand on, on where they 
which data centers have been used for which products. Right. Um, but that's sort of restriction on availability. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, looking at HoloLens, that was one of the other things that Microsoft showed off, and their demo looked looked pretty cool. Craig, um, did you see the, the, the demo where uh, basically sort of, you know, playing this game, you know, on stage? And, of course, these things are always a little bit faked because, you know, if you're looking, looking through a headset, you're not going to have a full you know, 360 sort of view, you're going to be limited to whatever the, the goggles can sort of show. And I don't think that's something that, you know, that, that people are highlight in terms of field of view. But um, other than that, it looked quite cool the way that the gamer was kind of interacting with their room and then things that were being overlaid sort of in, in 3D on top of that environment. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think my son's going to be really excited about that, um, you know, because the main, main way I look at the games is actually through his eyes, so I just stand back and watch him. But um, I can certainly see him running around the house now with his uh, <laughs> with his goggles on, and uh, I think that'll be quite exciting. <laughs> but it's certainly come a long way since, you know, in terms of looking at the quality of the gaming now, and I think we made a comment just before, is that, you know, we, we worry about our kids using these sorts of technologies, but potentially they could be the kind of technologies that will be, you know, a requirement and a job of the future. So um, I think it's it's really interesting to see how particularly kids, you know, are, and all of us are actually interacting with this kind of um, capability. And there's going to be a need, you know, as these things, this sort of technology develops, and it's not cheap, they're saying uh, first quarter of next year, developers will be able to get the development kit. I think it's 3000 US dollars. So this is a, you know, a whole computer with a headset. It's, uh, you know, it's a high end piece of equipment. This isn't just going to be for gaming, is it? I mean, there'll be all sorts of commercial applications for, for this type of technology from Microsoft. And, you know, I think Google have acquired a company in this space. So, you know, we're going to see a, a fair degree of development here. You can imagine when TripAdvisor gets into that as well, you know, you sit back in the lounge and plan your holiday, plan your holiday, put your headgear on and away you go. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of this, Goz? Well, I want the home. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually quite uh, quite enjoy playing games actually. And I but one of the things that was interesting, it, it, a lot of them started coming in on 3D, and I've, I've played a lot of the games in 3D. But now a lot of the games aren't coming out in 3D, so obviously that actually didn't take off as much as you might have expected. Um, these devices are. Uh, I actually think the fascinating about that is you can actually interact with a 3D model or a hologram. Um, that to me has uh, a use way outside of pure gaming. And I think while they demonstrated it, that, you know, the possibilities of the game, that's really about the excitement. But the reality is these sort of technologies for, you know, education, uh, for, for teaching doctors on, on complex operations, for engineering purposes, have got a huge amount of um, possibility. Yeah, I, think, I think about actually when I think of America's Cup days and um, thinking about what was the goal of the America's Cup was put the armchair sailor in the middle of the, the start block, you know, and, and sit in the best seat in the house. And I can imagine now looking at these sort of technologies, how you could actually be flying down and flying through the boats and actually really absorbing everything that's going on into real-time sports. So I could see real-time sports really taking a, a big leap forward with this sort of capability. What about these things actually being used by uh, people, a sailor on a boat? Uh, obviously, to start with, this technology, you wouldn't want to get it wet, but, uh, you know, all this, where you can add in a whole lot of information into the 
into the view that could uh, help them, you know. There'd be, be coaching and all sorts of other sort of information that sort of, I don't know, data flying up on the screen. Well, Practical or is well, that... Uh, well, if you think about it, if you're sitting back there and you're actually looking out to the ocean, I mean, obviously it's all about the weather, isn't it? So, I mean, and knowing where everything's coming from, and that was a big part, again, of the America's Cup, knowing when the wind was going to come. Mm. But to be able to forecast and see out to the distance and actually be able to effectively put your internet information into your uh, into your headset... Um, you know, there's certainly um, a lot of advantages in that. Yeah, you'd probably want something a bit a bit lighter than the uh, the hollow lens. That's a pretty big big piece of equipment. Yeah. But uh, the idea of of having that information that you can, I guess, uh, see on the go could be handy, at least for maybe for the skipper. Yeah, well, I guess it's it's about where it's all going to go, isn't it? Between like the Google Glass and then something a bit heavier, and then how does it? What, what kind of form factor it's going to take in the future? So, yeah. I'm looking forward to having a little bit of a play with it. But uh, in terms of where those things will will play out, there are probably just an unbelievable number of sort of possibilities for it. But it does seem a little bit weird to sort of think of people sitting around in an office with these things uh, on their heads, doesn't it? Uh, certainly look a little bit strange. <laughs> oh, I actually, I actually did have a session uh, one weekend actually uh, with an Oculus Rift. With uh, there was three of us, yeah. and uh, we all apparently went to one went to Mars, one went to a rock band. And uh, we all kind of didn't realise we're all standing up in the middle of the lounge for like about half an hour, not talking to each other. And then, but then we all unclipped and, and sort of explained what we just went on. So yeah, you know, okay, it's kind of antisocial, but quite an experiential thing. But we all went on different trips that night, so that was interesting. Well, it might make, might make your holidays a bit more interesting in the future, might not? <laughs> well, you might not have to leave your house. Yeah, that's so. right. You can have an armchair holiday. <laughs> Yeah, mm, yeah, I'm not sure it will quite quite compare, but uh, yeah. Now, um, just a couple of things from a local perspective about these uh, these products. So we think of the uh, Hololens. If that's three thousand US dollars, by the time we add in a bit of GST and so on, that's uh, well, that's probably you know five k here in New Zealand at least. So I can't imagine there's going to be lots of people signing up for these. It will be mostly the developers. Um, although I'm, I'm sure we'll find our ways to get uh, to get hands on and have a little bit of a, a play before they get commercialised. Um, Microsoft Surface Pro three. We've been told that the the base Surface Pro, sorry, Surface Pro four. Getting my numbers mixed up here uh, is going to launch here at fifteen ninety nine. So that's a, a reasonable you know chunk mm. up on the the previous pricing. Slightly higher uh, specification. I think they've dropped the the 64 uh, gig storage model, which uh, probably nobody bought anyway. And then the uh, the Surface Book, which hasn't been announced here, but we're hearing sort of a US sort of base price is 1500 US before you add on any tax and so on. Had a little bit of a look. If you go into uh, Microsoft's Australia web store where they've got those things, uh, the top model is listed there at over 4000 New Zealand dollars right now. Yeah, reasonably high-end product, so it's, I think it's mostly going to be uh, business users that are going to be jumping on these things. I think you're right. I think, um, I mean, as I said, you know, financial advisors is a good example. Um, you know, that it's, a, it's a business tool, and it, it probably, if you had a laptop and a desktop and you had your iPad and you could kind of semi-replace it with one, then the price is probably not that bad. Mm, mm. And, you know, I mean, these price points, yeah, at the top end, it's higher than, you know, what we typically see people spending on devices. But uh, that seems to, you know, Microsoft are, are trying to, you know, follow a little bit from Apple's playbook in terms of having premium devices cool. that people will pay mm. uh, pay a bit extra for. And, of course, there's probably a little bit of them being 
cautious about stepping on uh, toes of their partners, but I don't know if there's much of that, to be fair. If they're selling the top-end devices, that's where all the profit is, right? Mm. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. Now, the other thing that they, uh, they announced last week were these new Lumia smartphones, and, of course, the, the Microsoft with their, their uh, Windows phones haven't had a huge amount of the market share, but they've taken a slightly different approach here. So they've got a smartphone in the Lumia 950 and the 950XL uh, that have built-in um, Windows Hello, which is the, the capability for authenticating by looking at you. So you pick up the phone and, uh, you know, rather than the fingerprint reader, which we, we've seen on, on some of the others, uh, such as the Nexus 6P we've got here, it takes that, yeah, the 3D camera to have a look and confirm that it's you. And it's also got that capability that lets you dock your smartphone into keyboard, mouse and monitor and perform some of the functions on a PC. Craig, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that people really want and and need? Do you think you know? Do you think many people would use it? I mean, I'm thinking of what would be my use case for it because it's not going to do everything a PC is going to going to do. But I can think of you know often when I'm when I'm traveling, particularly if I'm on holiday, you know, you weigh up whether you want to take a, a laptop or a tablet and so mm. on with you because you can do so much on a smartphone now. And for the odd time when you do need to get in and do something. Um, having the little dock maybe in your in your suitcase that gives you a chance just to plug into the the TV whatever in your hotel room um, might be good enough. What do you think? Well, I think it's. I mean, I I'm not quite quite the, the largest screen, but I can just see there's there's definitely a point where I've got the mini and mm. I've got the Surface and I've got my phone. And as you say, I mean, I could probably survive quite a long time with my phone in terms of my email, reading a document, you know, and now video calling, which we'll talk about later, but. The ability to do all of those things all on a single device, you're still always going to have the luxury of getting back to something that you're more comfortable with. But it certainly means when people say, "I didn't take my, co- I didn't take my computer on holiday," but you've actually got your smartphone, so you're actually fully equipped and ready to go. So, um, no, I, I think you know it's about that, that form factor, and I think that form factor is actually pretty good for um, for reading and for doing pretty much most of what you do on a, a laptop. Yeah. Without sort of as we talked about like spreadsheets and things like that, but because mm-hmm. if it, you know the the dock will you know basically allow you to you know link it up and uh, mm. you know I guess your limitations are you'd be able to run a browser, you'd be able to run your Microsoft Office applications and whichever applications have got a uh, a mobile a mobile app for the Windows platform, which at the, at the moment uh, there, there's a yeah obviously there's a chunk that aren't there, but the key sorts of things that people need to do productivity wise are, are probably mostly there. There will, there will be certain apps you you know you use a PC before because they can only run on a PC, but in a lot of cases those might be able to run through a terminal service. You can get at them remotely or or through a browser. And you know, in terms of your app, so it'll be it'll be curious actually to uh, to test out. Um, well, I think your, that, your, your sweet box. Through yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. Well, I think the, I think the idea of actually just being, and I know there's a couple of products now, like you know, from your phone to you know, as people say, oh, I watch TV through my phone plugged into my TV, and of course, you know, the ability to say, I'll just point at that device, it's not my screen, but I, I need to borrow it for five minutes, and I point, and I, I'm just sharing, because it's amazing what you get now with the bandwidth, the 4G network, I mean, I get way better performance off my 4G phone than I do my home broadband, so, you know, the fact that you can, if you could just point at the screen and actually say, right, I just, I'll borrow it for five minutes, I've got everything on my, my device that I need, it's not like a USB stick, it's a you've actually got your little mini computer with you. So I think, you know, that whole kind of thinking is is smart and it's definitely kind of convenient. 
Because you, you mentioned uh, BYOD, bring your own device policy at, at Oracle. Do you think this is the sort of device that some people might might use, or is it going to be a, a little bit limited, a smartphone that becomes a PC? I'm not actually sure of the use case. I think if I'm going on holiday, I've got my iPad mini, yeah, um, and I've got my phone, and between those two, I can probably do 90% of what I ever had to do. And I think it's the difference between when you're consuming information or mm. producing information. And I think, you know, to get to Craig's point, you know, you, you're not going to use your smartphone for doing volume production, um, but you can consume pretty much everything on your iPhone if you get, you know, I'm not going to like success. Um, you know, there's not much that I can't read on that phone. You know, PDFs, spreadsheets, small spreadsheets, mm. or my iPad mini. I, I actually think the, what's interesting for me on, 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 I'm a bit of a follower of these smart devices and, I think right at the moment, you know, the, the, the competition's looking for an edge. Everyone's looking for what is that little bit of an edge to get a bit more market share. No one's really innovating right at the moment. I mean, you know, we're following each other. How many megapixels you can get in it? What sort of capability in terms of identification are we using? How much memory have I got? How much storage do I have? Um, but outside of that, there isn't a lot of differentiation that's happening in this market right at the moment. I think you know, the next supplier that finds that edge, that real actually use case that people's looking for, I think it's going to be significant. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly at that case where it sort of seems like the innovation you know, curve isn't nearly as steep as it, as it once was. There were so many new things coming out and you know, now the changes are, uh, are a lot more incremental. And you know, we talk about a smartphone like this that can you know, put an independent picture up on the screen. You can actually use a smartphone independently of whatever's happening on the screen with a keyboard and mouse. Um, but it's not a million miles different from a smartphone that lets you mirror what's on the screen uh, of the phone onto your, you know, onto your mm. bigger, your bigger screen. Um, yeah, that's curious. All right, now a few other topics wanted to chat about in Japan. They've announced that uh, they want autonomous cars to be uh, driving around for the 2020 Olympics. Um, what do you think of this, Craig? We've we've got uh, Toyota here saying yes, we're we're pushing down this track. We've got this deadline to meet. Is it good for us to have a bit of a deadline around moving to autonomous vehicles, or do you think that's a bit of a, a safety risk? Well, I think it's always it's always a good catalyst, isn't it? And a, a good event always sort of brings on spurs on new technology. I mean, I always can go back to the America's Cup. But always the deadline was the deadline, and, and new technology had to be evolved for the deadline. So the fact that the Olympics are putting something in place that will help. Um, bring new innovation because you talk about the Olympics brings new infrastructure but this actually would bring innovation that could really make a difference and I think that's a, it's great to have a deadline and I think uh, if that spurs it on I think it's a great thing. What about you guys? Yeah I think uh, well autonomous cars is uh, is, is going to be there in the future. I think there are many manufacturers that are we've got both technology companies like Google for example uh, and of course the car manufacturers um, you know, this is what happened to cameras. I mean, think about what happened to cameras. I mean, Kodak owned you know the camera market, or Polaroid owned the camera market, and now the phone companies own the camera market. Um, you know, the, the risk is around autonomous cars. If the, if the car manufacturers don't take a lead in this, you're going to have Google cars. Um, you're going to have Microsoft cars um, because that's actually a technology solution. The engine, the wheels, and the gearbox—that's that's sort of it's componentry. And it becomes less of those things in some ways become a little bit less as we move into, uh, you know, electric vehicles too, because we, you know, well, well there's still a lot of R&D and, and technology in there, but, 
you know, in some ways, electric vehicles are a lot, uh, a lot, a lot simpler, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and autonomous yeah. electric. Um, but I think the, the exciting thing about autonomous vehicles is, is in the city congestion that we have at the moment, it will allow cars to move through the city in a much denser uh, sense, and um, so you'll get a lot more throughput into the cities today. And, and if you had smart cars that are able to go into certain areas like the city, you had to be smart to drive in the city. Uh, it would solve a lot of problems around, you know, uh, pedestrian worries around accidents. Uh, you'd be able to get much closer to the vehicles because they'll know each other's proximity. So there's a whole lot of possibilities from a city planning perspective that autonomous cars will give you. Yeah, I guess there's a huge benefit. You could you could relate it a little bit, you know, like we 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 look at the cloud and you know as we move away from infrastructure that's that's on you know business premises, it often isn't you know very well utilised. As we move into that world of autonomous vehicles, then you know especially when we use them in Uber type model or sharing type models and so on, yeah, you can imagine that yeah the infrastructure is going to be much you know better used in terms of roads is getting used more efficiently uh, and the actual vehicles themselves so there's going to be a, I guess a pretty huge change there yeah there'll be a lot of data flying around I guess in terms of like the uber model would you say like you'll be able to sort of like take full advantage of actually what's happening around you and um, you know not just from the the sensors but just the fact that you can get traffic data and all the all that sort of information that sort of convenient routing you know that type of thing so I think that's going to be uh, all good yeah I'm uh, I'm looking looking forward to when we're at that point where it it no longer you know makes any sort of uh, convenience or financial you know there's no longer any convenience benefit or financial benefit of actually owning your own vehicle because it's it's so efficient and mm. you know we, we've we've certainly seen that uh, you know particularly at the small business end of things with uh, with this move to cloud technology where you know, it's more and more making sense for people to utilise things in the cloud rather than having all their own uh, you know, infrastructure that they own. Now, we got hit with the big news uh, really overnight. Uh, it had been maybe rumoured for a couple of days over the weekend that um, Dell are to acquire EMC in a $67 billion deal. Goz, what's your uh, what's your take on this? This has got to be one of the the biggest ever, if not the biggest ever, sort of uh, tech acquisition that we've seen. This is a mammoth tech acquisition. Uh, it's interesting in a, in a number of sense because it's 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 almost against a trend. Mm. Uh, if you look at HP, they're trying to divest businesses. If you look at what IBM are doing, they're trying to divest businesses, take on new businesses. Um, Dell, on the other hand, is taking on. Uh, you know, what is the number one storage company in the world where storage itself is under pressure? Uh, it's been commoditized because cloud is commoditizing storage. Dell needs a storage partner. They're not strong in storage, uh, but their storage partners typically be the NetApp. Uh, in fact, if you look at the three service providers the government's got on the IS panel, uh, they're all got different combinations of storage and service. Yes. And if, if we look at the detail in that, uh, you know, it's going to be quite disruptive. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting one just to see see how it all falls out. Now, a bit more of a sort of consumer-oriented story. Um, a, f- a few months ago, I had uh, my DNA uh, test done with Ancestry.com, and I got talking to them about, well, you're getting this information, what else, you know, might you be able to do with that information rather than, you know, just tell me about my ancestry. And, uh, you know, we've just heard now that they're uh, there in the US, they're talking to the government about 
how they could use that data a little bit more broadly. Now, there's been a bit of uh, controversy around this in the past where DNA data has been used to maybe uh, suggest to people, you know, where they might have health problems and, you know, diseases they're, they're at risk with. But, I mean, it seems to me it, m- it makes some sense if you're getting a DNA test done for, for one thing and there's a whole lot of other data, that could be quite useful. You got to pick on this, Craig? Yeah, well, I was, I was just thinking about because obviously life insurance or insurance around advisory is one of the areas that we're working in. And, of course, um, one of the most onerous things is doing your life insurance form and I guess if something like this in terms of smart technologies would enable you to be able to complete uh, with confidence a form and then the insurer also being able to read the DNA that would actually allow them to make a, a good decision and then everyone's happy because in times where you do need it, you know that, well, you actually gave the truth and the DNA actually did give you the right um, uh, you know, forecast, I guess you could say. So, so I can see some speed improvements and, and uh, business improvements around that sort of uh, analysis. Yeah. What would you do? Just lick the form and then they'll, uh, they'll, 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 they'll take look, that and do a DNA it, test well, on it. It would save you a lot of time, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's an on-screen form, I wonder how that would work. We need a few technology advances. Exactly. Because uh, does this make sense or there's some sort of concerns around this sort of information and, uh, you know, I guess there's security around this information that would be pretty important, but, you know, also sort of... Do we need to know all of this stuff, or does it do more harm than good? Well, from a personal perspective, I'm not sure that I would really want to know if I've got a health problem. However, the benefit, if I did know, I might be able to do something to fix it. But I I think this is interesting from a couple of perspectives. One, clearly security becomes a big issue, and data privacy becomes a big issue. Um, Secondly, this has enormous potential in terms of uh, being able to predict be a greater predictor of diseases and and, and 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 health benefits in terms of you know what conditions uh, are caused that are, that are purely a DNA condition that can be intervened on early and to change it. I mean, there's been a lot of research done, and, and for example, you know, why certain people get uh, lung diseases and other people don't? Yet both people can smoke. Some of that's a predisposition uh, because of DNA. Um, but we don't really know, we don't know enough yet about what what those critters are. Mm. If we did, you know, it's in medical intervention could take on a whole new um, scope. So I think it's pretty exciting. I think the concern that people are going to have is really around data privacy and uh, where that data is stored, mm. uh, who has access to that data and what that data is. But you can anomalise the data. Mm. Mm. So there's, there's a huge, I think there's a huge upside if we can get over the data privacy issues. Yep. Now, I'd like to drill in uh, on both sides, with both both Oracle and, and Sweetbox. Maybe we can um, start, guys, with a little bit of an update on what's been happening in the world of, of Oracle. Um, pretty massive company in the in the tech sector, uh, but we haven't sort of you know spoken to you on the show before, so I'm keen to uh, you know hear what's been happening, what's been going on, because there have been some you know pretty significant changes uh, in the business in recent times. Yeah, there, there is actually, and that's been one of the exciting things about being Oracle for the long period that I have. Is I've seen an organisation that is probably as strong as banners around the database still, um, but a lot of people probably haven't realised the, the number of acquisitions that have been made, and we have product capability right from disk storage uh, right through to business applications, you know, telco out of a box, banking out of a box, um, you know, for big high-end enterprise organisations, you know. And a raft of tools, you know, in the middle, including big data and analytics. 
One of the things that we've been working on over the last five years, and we're nearly there, uh, is, is moving everything into the cloud. And the approach we've taken is to take our on-premise software and, and hardware and provide the same capability, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud. In fact, to the point that if you want to move your on-premise applications into the cloud, you can literally do it with a push of a button. Wow. Um, and more importantly, if you want to bring it from cloud to on-premise, again, you can do that very easily. Okay. So you've just got that convenience going back in, in, yeah, no, think, in either direction. I mean, do you see much interest in people that would, you know, maybe start in the cloud as maybe a smaller business and then maybe as they, they move out of an early development phase want to bring infrastructure back on-premise? Or do you think most businesses will tend to keep moving in that cloud direction? I think a combination of both. I think we're seeing a lot of interest in organisations that have an on-premise strategy today are looking at what they can move to the cloud. They want to move it into cloud because it gives them more agility and, and lowers their cost to operate. We're seeing a lot of, we're seeing some companies, and Sweetbox is a great example. Uh, they're, they're a startup organisation. They see they're a global company, uh, and they see a large growth aspiration, and they're selling into an enterprise. They want an enterprise scale capability, but they want a SaaS model or a PaaS model you know, in the cloud, um, and that's a great example. Mm. And maybe Greg can talk about that in a minute, but. Um, so the, the work we've been doing has been, you know, how do we, how do we move these organisations that we work with, which are the bigger enterprise organisations here in New Zealand, and take them from an on-prem model to a cloud model that makes sense for them from, from a, a business agility perspective and what financially makes sense. And it's not a one-size-fits-all, and that's the complexity of enterprise software. Um, it's very dependent on, on, on the organisation's infrastructure maturity. Um, and, and you know their ability to move things into the cloud, and you know there are a lot of business applications today that will stay and uh, make sense to be on premise. And it's working through those models with our customers, and then coming up with what's the right solution for them. Right, and you know in the, this this world of cloud, there are a lot of people, or a lot of organisations that are maybe cautious about taking data that they've had locally and moving it to the cloud, you're saying that's now yeah, basically a push of the button, so that makes life easier. Um, how much of a concern is it for the sort of customers you deal with where you're dealing with sort of banks and government organisations and so on around that, the, the uh, concept of data sovereignty and, and people taking this information offshore from New Zealand because, uh, yeah, that's what that's what tends to happen in these cases. Is that a big thing for people or is there sort of some in-between in options for, um, you know, for moving to the cloud? Yeah, look, it's, it's an initial concern for organisations. It's less of a concern for small organisations. I mean, we've been moving cloud applications offshore for some time. Zero's data centres are not in New Zealand. They're, yeah. they're in the US. Yeah. Um, that's not a concern for businesses here in New Zealand. It is a bit concerned for banks. I mean, it would be, uh, you know, banks are going to need a lot of convincing to move their core banking information offshore. But right at the moment, they're moving customer records offshore through these CRM systems. Um, there's a lot of big enterprise customers right at the moment that run the HR systems offshore or parts of the HR system offshore. So they might have their core HR record on-premise. But for recruitment, uh, social recruitment, for talent management, for training and learning, that can be offshore. That can be in a, in a cloud model integrated to their core HR. Uh, take ERP is probably another good example. Um, they can have their core system of record on-premise, but they could do all their reporting in the cloud. 
uh, or they can do their financial planning and budgeting in the cloud, for example, because that data is not necessarily stored offshore, it's processed offshore and the core records updated on premise. Right, and so and your cloud offerings at the moment are they're, they're growing pretty rapidly. So, uh, in terms of those offerings, are you able to offer you know most of what you can offer in terms of you know install on, on their premises locally in the cloud now? Yeah, so we've got a an aim. We have open world at the end of October. Um, we will be pretty much at ninety percent of our all our products are storage uh, hardware or, or business software will be available in the cloud. Uh, today, it's around 70% of our uh, on-premise capabilities in the cloud today. And how does that look from a, a local perspective? New Zealand, Australia, you know, are often you know, thought of as uh, yeah, reasonably forward-thinking in this region in terms of moving to utilise cloud-type services. Um, is that because we've got a lot of small and medium businesses here, or are you seeing the similar thing happen uh, at the bigger end of town with, with the big uh, organisations that, that you um, often work with too? So we've just done a study in Australia, uh, a cloud agility study. Uh, we, we interviewed uh, something around 2,400 companies. And actually the results of that survey was actually a little bit disappointing in respect that we've been told that Australia and New Zealand is the most cloud-ready country in the world. When you look at the enterprise space... Did you say country? (laughs) (laughs) Cloud-ready country. In the enterprise world, uh, I think there is a lot more concern about moving to the cloud. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think the... And again, this is dependent on the type of applications that the enterprise is winning. So if you look at a bank, there's Mm. a lot of things Mm. banks do that you can move into the cloud. Mm. Um, There's a lot of things that banks do that will be a long time we move in the cloud. Mm. For example, their internet banking... Um, the core banking records, um, yet yeah, the CRM systems make a lot of sense. They can run in the cloud. Right. Yeah. So I think the survey results for something like 22% of organizations were actually taken up um, a software offering in the cloud um, as opposed to, if you look at the lower end of the um, business, it's probably up around 70 or 80%. So I think the enterprise spaces which we work in uh, is, is a lot slower to adopt because of more risk of this. Um, they're more risk averse because they have more structure and rigidity around what they deploy. Yeah, okay. Now, your customer base, I mean, where do you sort of reach to? Because there are, there are certainly, uh, you know, it's not just the big enterprises that use uh, Oracle. You've got smaller customers. What sort of, you know, where do you sort of scale down to? Well, I think uh, we've got a sweet world. Yeah, we've got a great example sitting next to me. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, this is the thing with uh, our SaaS and PaaS offerings. It, um, uh, so our platform is a service, which is really our database and middleware uh, down, uh, is what we call platform. And SaaS is really our applications, like our CRM and, and ERP. One of the great things about this cloud models, we can now reach down into organizations that we probably didn't have access to do. I mean, there is a little bit of polarization in the market. You're a Microsoft organization, you're an Oracle, you're a combination of two, and one's departmental and one's enterprise. With SaaS, uh, our reach can be down to two or three users, and we have some great use cases here in New Zealand that are using uh, our service cloud, which is around how organizations come into business. Uh, Juicy Rentals is a good example of a small organisation, um, great brand in New Zealand that has uh, taken up our SaaS offerings. Yeah, okay. 
Craig, I want to hear a little bit about um, Sweetbox. You've been around now for a little while, but you've been getting a little bit of extra, uh, you know, attention uh, recently. Can you tell us a, a little bit about, you know, what the company is, what you're doing, and, yeah, what that extra attention has been recently? Well, you know, I think the the idea is obviously after the America's Cup, I wanted to really sort of do something um, that was a bit more meaningful in terms of that was great, but that happened every four years. I wanted to build something that was was going to be with us every day uh, of in terms of something that was going to be making our lives easier and uh, really kind of looked hard at all the different parts of my life and I, I thought, well, the thing that annoys me the most is probably having to go across town to meet my advisor and sign all these documents and, and have these constant, you know, travelling around and sort of getting to a fax machine, not a fax machine, but just uh, getting to other devices to send documents back signed and things like that. And so, you know, Sweetbox is kind of like, I guess, a combination of a number of things that I learned over the time about, we talked about cloud before, you know, I remember going back to the America's Cup where we had to literally get on a plane, take the hardware servers and go and plant them into Europe and uh, the US, you know, physically into, you know, telecom exchanges to deliver that service or pay, you know, 18-month licenses for something that you only needed for two months. And then we're looking at the cloud now, looking at startups and looking at the way you go, you know, I'm kind of used to having a global ambition and I'm so I've got a full global ambition on this one and it sort of says, well, we're solving a problem, we're making life easier, we're actually going to make a combination of what you think of signing a document on screen while you're in a video call, while you can record the advice that you were given at the time, which can get shot off to wherever you want it to go. And uh, talk about sovereignty in the case of the banks, who are, who are very much a target market. Um, they'll go where, where where they want it to go in the cloud. But as far as what's happened with Oracle, is was a kind of an SME startup, two and a half years in, learning a lot from what we've done in the past and saying, okay, what have we made mistakes on? You know, we don't want to rebuild our technology platform over and over again. We want to do it once, and we don't want to do it well. So. And that was the whole idea of actually kind of teaming up with Oracle and thinking about the future as being successful, that we want to make, you know, every person who belongs to a bank or an advisory practice be able to have a lifelong uh, relationship with their advisor where it's actually pretty painless. It's um, Whether it's using the Surface or whether it's using an iPad or a smartphone, wherever you're convenient, you might, have to, you might be on the golf course with your phone and you get a document that comes through, I have to sign this mortgage document, um, I want everything referenced. I want it all filed back in the cloud. I don't want to have a filing cabinet. I want to make my life easy. And, <clears throat> and that's the whole premise of Sweetbox is that it's about really combining a number of sort of technologies that we've kind of used to, like might be DocuSign um, or it might be Skype, but then combine all that together and actually create something that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. And that's kind of like what Sweetbox is all about. And I think... Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of success in Australia, particularly at the moment. So, uh, so it's growing really quick because I think it is actually, you know, it's, it's solving a problem. Mm. It's it's interesting that you talk about you know needing to sign things off when you're not next to the technology that would make that you know reasonably mm. easy. You know, last time I bought a house, I can remember you know we were we were on holiday uh, you know somewhere at Coromandel and. You know, trying to actually go through the process, get documents mm. signed off, and you know, they're faxed and all of the stuff that they wanted was a it was a real rigmarole mm. actually. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, you know, we, just being able to do that on the screen of a well, surface, for instance, and uh, 
you know, with a live video feed. Well, well you imagine you're, you're sitting at a batch in the Coromandel. You don't have internet, right, but you've got your phone. So you go into your 4G hotspot, right, so you're, you're hooked up your mini iPad. You've, uh, you've got an email from your advisor who wants to get that mortgage signed. You get the email, you just go one click, you're in a virtual room, and the document's been presented to you. Use your finger, sign it, it sends you an electronic copy, sends them a copy, and everyone's, everyone's happy, and um, transaction done, and you get on uh, enjoying your holiday. So I think you know, that whole, you know, is a, I think we've all got stories of those situations where it was a real pain, you know, so I think that's, uh, that's what I think we're actually solving. And how important is the video side of it now? You know, I remember, uh, you know, going, going back a long way, it was, you know, we were always the future. We were going to have, you know, uh, video calling and so on. And, and now we've got a capability to do that, but we maybe don't use it as, as much as we could. And I think, you know, we lose something in terms of that connection with people when you, you know, you never see them if it's, you know, just over the phone and, and so on. What it's been your experience with how you know how it's worked for uh, financial advisors that are that are using your technology to you know well, connect that way rather than just phone calls or is it just or is it more replacing the person to person you know the in person meetings? Well, I think the key thing is is that some people say like the, you need a physical contact to actually build a relationship, which is which is probably fair. Uh, but then over time, when people start travelling, and of course these advisors make money out of actually managing the portfolio of a client, and so. Client might move, you know, different circumstances happen. They go to the Gold Coast. Um, if you can't go with them and, you, and it's going to be expensive, you think you're going to fly over there. The fact that you can just have that relationship over video and the, now we've got high definition video, uh, it's conversational. There's no latency anymore. That's actually kind of like, so you are having a conversation. You are allowing both parties to pull documents from the cloud and, and actually share them. So I think that um, the idea of a relationship and the way that Sweetbox is built is around a room. So you get a room for life, and so you go in and out of that room. You might not be, there might be times where you don't actually need video. You might be that you left a document in the room. Why don't you go in when you're, it's convenient to you? Go in, sign it, or review it. If you've got a question about it, maybe give me a call and I'll jump back in the room and I'll explain it to you. We're both seeing the same thing at the same time, and I think that's... That's the power. Of, so it's not maybe just about the video. It's about the transaction. It's about the relationship. And it's about people on the move and, and the way people do change their lives. You know, Goss, you've been in Australia, but you might have actually had a financial advisor here. And so, you know, he's going to try and he wants your business. So he wants to keep up with you. So, you know, this is a great way to do it. I have a client advisor in Australia and I wish he had that technology. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pain. Oh, you better uh, you better get on. We'll be talking afterwards. Yeah, new opportunity. So, um, I mean, talking about this, you know, you've got what you know what's a startup business, and I always love you know hearing from uh, New Zealand, uh, especially tech tech startups, uh, and especially those that are out to sort of you know take on the world. You know, where are you at in that sort of uh, trajectory? How you how you getting on with? Uh, you know, from getting the product developed and now getting out and, and, and selling it. Yeah, well, we're we're in our beta stage, so we've, we've now we've got in Australia. We've already set up in Australia. We've um, we've got a number of you know we've probably got over forty organisations now piloting the software, and these are large banking and financial services companies. Uh, we just finished a roadshow over there, and we got a great response. Um, no real competitor, direct competitor uh, situation over there, and um, or either here. Um, so, because we're not a Skype, we're a different, we're a business tool. You're very focused, aren't yeah, you? We're very yeah. focused, and, yeah. I, and I think that's the trick. This one, that's, that's hopefully the thing I've learned the most out of being focused is that we're solving a problem. We hit the market. We've got great interest, and uh, we're about to go live in the next week. 
and um, so we'll be starting to sign up um, customers and start to move forward. But already internationally, we're getting a lot of interest. We've already won a, a gold uh, a gold award in America for what we've done with CRM, so integrating video with CRM, so with one of the large players. So we've got some good validation there, but that's allowed us to start thinking even even more focused. So um, yeah, so I think it's uh, we're on a we're on the right trajectory. Good, and. How different would your business have been if you know, the cloud services that are available today weren't? Would that have messed you up at the at the outset? Is this you know made it much much easier, or is it just a, a reduction in terms of capital that you've needed to get launched? I, I think it's actually massive right now for uh, the fact that you know you can mash up businesses. You can you know you think about everything that you used to do and you'd have to build it yourself, and now you're actually able to just sort of, sort of clip on these various things. And zero you know clips on many different companies around you. They've got a huge ecosystem. And I guess in terms of video as a big ecosystem, but we plug into many things that we don't want to, we don't want to necessarily do, you know. So it might be Amazon on the streaming side and it's Oracle in terms of the whole database authentication security side. And these, these sort of things like when we're talking to banks, you know, in which we are, when we can mention names like Oracle, they immediately go, right, okay. So when we talk about the security questions, which is the very first one that comes up, at least we can go straight into a different uh, level of conversation because we've thought about what success might look like and we've actually thought about not just doing it in an open source environment which might go, well, come on, how are you guys going to really secure this data? We have really good, we have a good story to tell about how we're going to do that and how we can scale. So we're not actually worried about success. Um, you know, if the million-dollar customer question comes up, we can ha- we can handle that. You so can, you can scale as quickly as you need to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Now, because this is sort of a bit of a different oracle that's able to uh, you know serve these smaller startups and you know right up to your big uh, enterprise customers. What sort of changes does that mean you've got to do in the business to you know, cater to this? Because this you know this is not the really the oracle of, of old in many ways. You, you must have a few changes going on behind the scenes, I guess. Being cloud-based, it means we'll be seeing faster iterations in, in software. You know, traditionally people wouldn't be you know upgrading their database platforms particularly quickly, and, and certainly in terms of releases, you know, those were fairly slow. But that sort of thing has to accelerate in the cloud world, so that must bring changes too. Yeah, Paul. So it's it's quite significant actually. Um, I mean, we still we still have on-premise customers. Um, the move to cloud is actually a big cultural change for us, both in terms of uh, how we service the customers uh, from a sales perspective, and then how we treat those customers going forward. Is one of the things with cloud is it's a continuous service because they're buying a service, and they measure your, your service on your engagement model that you have for them. And, and, and I'll give you an example. A good example you talked about is, is, is how often we update software. So in the on-premise uh, world, uh, we, would, we did a major release uh, probably every two years, uh, and a lot of customers would go to the next level. So every four years, two to four years, they'd have an upgrade cycle. In the cloud world, it's every six months. So to get users to continue to adopt new features and functionality means that we need to employ people in our organization that are servicing our customers in a different way than we used to in the past. So we've made a significant investment in people in our organization that, that sit down with our customers as a client advisor, mm. sit down with their customers because that's the service. And they go through statistics with their customers of how they use the software, how they could use the software better, how they could get better business benefit out of it, 
What are the new features and functions? What do they need to plan for going forward? What continuous training do they need? Where else in the organisation could it be deployed? Because a lot of these organisations start small. They start on one part of their organisation and move, grow it out because that's what you can do in a service model. So that's quite an exciting change because it's bringing very different people into the organisation we traditionally have. So that's driving a, a significant cultural change, which I'm pretty excited about. It's actually, thinking about this, the other day we were at a conversation uh, with a woman at Technology Lunch that I was invited to. We talked about diversity. Well, actually, diversity has a lot of different um, dimensions. If you think about diversity, um, you know, age, we think about in terms of uh, women in, in technology, uh, but there are many dimensions. And if you look at our organisation, we have a very diverse organisation now, both from graduates we bring in um, to people like myself that have been in Oracle for quite some time. And why we need that diversity? Because we're actually a very diverse organisation, um, from, as you said, quite traditional on-premise business to a very modern uh, SaaS uh, cloud business. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, looking forward, what, what do you expect to sort of keep, you know, changing? What's the direction that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see? Is that direction sort of pretty, pretty clear from, from here on in for Oracle? Right at the moment, our, our direction is moving our customers from a, a cost model that they are seeing as prohibitive to a point that they want to get more flexibility out of the money they spend. So we're looking at how we can leverage existing spend that customers are doing and modernise that spend. And we're modernising that spend by moving some of their business models from on-premise to cloud. And as I said before, not everything is going to move to the cloud. Um, so when you get a combination of actually server consolidation uh, and then taking what you can't consolidate from servers and moving into cloud, you get a whole different cost operate model. When you deliver that sort of model, then that gives the customers the agility they're looking for today. Because all the big organisations and enterprise use them, they are undergoing change themselves. They have a lot more competitors that are coming in than them. So they need to adopt their business models far quicker than they used to do in the past. To do that, they need a lot more flexibility in their core business systems. So you guys have to move pretty quickly because uh, you know, not only do your customers want to move quickly, but... Everyone in the cloud space is moving a whole a whole lot quicker, right? I mean, there, there's a lot more competition probably, and customers can can make changes much quicker than they used to in the past. So, so the competitive nature of this business is is, is quite uh, different than what it used to be on premise for that reason, and and we need to find ways of, of providing greater levels of service to our customers that actually is is more in real time than it was in the past, and and. You know, that's a great challenge to have, and I, and, I, and I think we're up to the task. And we're certainly, at a corporate level, moving very quickly from what was a traditional model that I used to operate to a more modern uh, cloud model. And I think while we may have been late to the cloud, the investment we're making in cloud is, is, is significant to the point that, you know, we're employing, we've made an announcement the other day, we're employing a thousand more people across Asia-Pacific. That's been driven by a new model, and that's the mm. service model. And we need to drive, and this is one of the things that we think we'll find in a maturity cycle of cloud, is that the early adopters didn't invest up front in some of the capabilities in terms of data centers, security, uh, people who are able to service those customers. They're going to find it tougher as larger enterprise organizations like SAP and Oracle and Microsoft get, in, get their uh, cloud model together. Mm. 
Well, that's quite interesting. So employing a thousand people across the Asia Pacific region, I mean, we've certainly, you know, we often come across, uh, you know, startups and, and the Googles and so on of this world, which seem to be growing very quickly. But, uh, for businesses have been around a lot longer. It's more often we're sort of seeing, uh, seeing cutbacks. Is, is much of that going to be here within the, within New Zealand? You're, you're employing a bunch here as, as yeah, part we've, of Yeah, we've, we've made significant investment in local capability for a cloud business. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what does that look like now in terms of your staff base here in New Zealand? How, how big are you now? Um, so it's, it's not really so much about the number of people we employ. It's about shifting the type of people we employ. You know, we're not in the business of big implementation cycles anymore. So when I went to Australia uh, eight years ago, we had a large consulting organization. We have spent a lot of our investment in upskilling our partner base. So our partners are doing a lot of the implementation work that we used to do so we can take the investment we used to have in the in that consulting organization and, and reinvest into people that do servicing our customers in a different way. And investing in our partners is giving us our implementation capability for some of the newer products, uh, SaaS products, and also for some of our more traditional on-premise things. So it's shifting our business model uh, significantly is probably more the point. Okay, that's great. Well, um, look, thank you both for uh, for joining me. This has uh, been a fascinating discussion. Craig, where can people track you down if they'd uh, they'd like to find out a little bit more about what you're up to and about Sweetbox? Uh, well, Sweetbox dot com. So notice the dot com. So uh, you know, global. So no, on, on there we've got uh, many things in terms of trials and demos of the technology, and um, so uh, that's the best uh, location. Right, and uh, because how do how do people get in touch with Oracle locally? What's the what's the best best way to uh, to connect? Well, I'm happy if they want to send me an email if they like. <laughs> yeah, I love it when I get the opportunity to talk to customers. Oh, great! So just send an email to robert.gosling at oracle.com. That's great, excellent. Well, thanks very much. Thanks everyone for uh, for listening in and uh, and joining us. Uh, we'll be back again next week, and uh, you can find out about this in our other podcasts at podcasts.nz. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.